as you can see, I updated the, the handout. We're not gonna go over the old material, but what I did is um, for everybody's benefit, I put in um, all the psukim that are being dealt with here, which is, as you can see, quite a few. And, um, and I also uh, got rid of a few things and, and cleaned a few things up um, so that, um, let me just do this here. No, okay, and um, and so we're going to pick off, pick up exactly where we left off. As I said, this is a two-part. The truth is, it could be a twelve-parter, but we're not going to do it. We're going to do it just today, and that's it. We looked at the beginning of the sugya, which is here. Uh, it's source twenty-three. Believe it or not, the first thing we're looking at is source twenty-three, but we have twenty-one sukim that are there, and we're going to refer reference them back. Um, and we started with the dispute between Chizkiah and Rabbi Avahu about whether it's automatic, if the Torah prohibits eating something, does that automatically bring with it a prohibition of Hana or not? That's, that was the bottom line. Chizkiah took the position that it does not. And therefore, he said, we need a special wording in the Pasuk, Lo yeachel chametz, chametz shall not be eaten to make it prohibited Bahana'ah. Rabbi Avahu took the opposite position. And Rabbi Avahu is the focus of our discussion last week and today, which is his position was anytime the Torah says, don't eat, thou shalt not eat, ye all shall not eat, wherever you want to say it, it means a prohibition of Hana'ah unless it spells it out differently. So what we're going to do today is we're going to divide it really into two parts, one much longer part and then the last few minutes. The longer part is we're going to learn through the sugya. The sugya is long, and it is a great opportunity to enhance our study skills because it, it, we're going to see a lot of nuances of the Gemara, um, and I'll explain the color coding that's going on here uh, as we come as we come along. We're going to start at um, at uh, right here, Meitiv Rabbi Yitzchak Napacha, right at the bottom of page two. But the second thing that we'll do is towards the end of the shoe or the last few minutes, we're going to talk about what is the conceptual difference between Chizkiah and Rabbi Avahu. In other words, how do they look differently at a prohibition of eating in the Torah and what it means, which then leads to either assuming Hana'ah or assuming no Hana'ah. Okay, but let's get started. And remember, again, it's Rabbi Avahu's position that anytime the Torah prohibits eating something, that implies a prohibition of Hana'ah unless explicitly spelled out differently. And it's his position that's now on the firing range. So the first thing we want to take a look at is this word, metiv. Now, an important trick in Aramaic um, is in, when you see a word in Aramaic and it has a tav in it, automatically just try, as an experiment, try putting a shin in its place and see if it works. And you will find that most of the time, by putting a shin in there, the word will, the word will become a lot more recognizable and it'll be easier to deal with. So, metiv, meshiv. Well, hashiv is to respond in Hebrew. A metivta is a yeshiva. Resh metivta is rosh yeshiva, as an example. And this happens a lot. So, metiv, it means heshiv, which means he responded. And that means that Rabbi Yitzhak Napacha is going to challenge this, uh, this rule of Rabbi Avahu. Now, the second thing is, uh, is something that we're going to continue to, we've been talking about and we're going to continue to talk, talk about, which is the different layers that happen in a discussion in the Gemara. And the reason I have to keep doing this is because it's so easy for us when you read a Gemara to read a Gemara, which is what you do, but... Um, and that's what the word Gemara actually means, reading. But um, since we are so accustomed, because we should be accustomed to reading a book and assuming that the book is the, is the product of a single author or a group of authors, and we, we have to see that what we have here is something very different. What we have is layers upon layers upon layers of discussion. And we have to kind of discern which part is what, what is what part of one layer. So that, that takes a lot of work, but it actually helps us understand the sugiya much better, understand what's going on. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is because the layer 
that we refer to as stamai, meaning the anonymous later rabbis in the Gemara. You don't hear their names. They are the guys behind the curtain pulling the strings who are somewhat editing and shaping the Gemara used particular, a, a lexicon of code words, keywords really, to let you know what's coming up. And one of the keywords they used was metiv. Right, so whenever you say metiv, automatically know you're going to hear an attempt at a refutation. That's right. So just a, cue, a code word, and etive is a verb, verbal form of it. It's the same thing. Metiv, etive. So metiv Rabbi Yitzchak Napacha. Rabbi Yitzchak Napacha challenged this ruling, and he challenged it as follows. I asked this at the beginning of last week also. How would you challenge a statement like that that says? Anytime, the minute you say anytime, you know that you got to take a pot shot at it. Anytime the Torah says don't eat, it implies a prohibition of Hana'ah unless it spells it out differently like it does with Nevelah. How do you challenge that? So you could challenge it in one of two opposite ways. What do you think? You guys first, think? first, how uh, don't you have to define what the element of Hana'ah is? As it as it relates to eating, I mean, you can have hanaa, which is visual, something visual, and each definition right has, has to right. be defined. Not and only right, but not only am we right, but I'm going to add to that. Is what Manny's saying? So Emmanuel says, Bernard. Uh, Bernard. Is, I didn't say Bernard, but what Manny points out is that we have to define hanaa, not for our purposes, but we do. And I'll just quickly give it a sign, then come back to where we are. What is Hana'ah? And the, the, the answer is, our old favorite answer is it depends. It depends for what kind of purpose. So for instance, um, if I like the way that a particular, I, I, there's a, ba a non-kosher bakery on the block and I walk past there and they make the most delightful looking pastries. They're just really attractive to look at. I wouldn't think of eating them. It's the last thing in the world I need. It's not kosher. And now it's Pesach. And I'm walking past. And I take a look and I say, well, isn't that a beautiful image of a handsome man throwing a discus, you know, made out of, uh, out of uh, what do you call it, marmalade? I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not the kind of a hot now I'll be defined here. However, let's say that it was a religious shop and it had a cross and the cross was delightful, and I was to come by and say, boy, isn't that a gorgeous cross? Then I'd have a problem with Hana. So you're right. What kind of Hana it is depends on what the context is. When it comes to issues of idolatry, Hana is much more far-reaching. When it comes to issues of Isure Hana in the classic sense of Ma'achalot Asurot, forbidden foods that extend Hana, then it may be a different kind of Hana. It may be financial, like selling it or feeding it to my animals, which saves me money on buying animal food, something of that sort. There may be a whole other kind of Hana'ai involved. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick example and we'll get back to it. It's just a real fun thing to think about. Uh, and it's really timely because here in LA, for the first time in a long time, it rained. It really rained seriously today. Um, and so let's just say that you're sitting in a sukkah. Now, are you allowed to get benefit from the schach? The answer is no. The schach is kodesh, and it's a gemara in sukkah in the first parak. It's building on the pasuk chag hasukot, that the sukkah is compared to a chag, a chagiga. Ma chagiga chal kashem shachal shem shemaim al chagiga kach chal shem shemaim al sukkah. Just like Hashem's name is called on the chagiga, meaning a korban chagiga is sanctified with God's name, so is the schach. And not allowed to get Hana from Schach. So you can't take Schach in the middle of Sukkot and, uh, and use it, uh, take it down and start fanning yourself, right? So now here's the question. What happens if you're sitting in a Sukkah and it starts raining? What do you do? You go inside. Go inside. <laughs> How quickly do you have to go inside? How quickly do you have to go inside? Do you say, inside, right? I have to run inside because right now, while it's raining, I am getting Hana'a from the schach because I'm not getting wet. And I'm not fulfilling the mitzvah of sukkah because I'm exempt from sukkah because it's raining. 
Well, we don't say that. We don't say you have to run quickly inside. Hey, you take your time, move your stuff. You know, and if it's raining badly enough that you have to leave the sukkah, you leave the sukkah. Why? Because there it's a different kind of hana'a. That's what hana'a that the Rechonim referred to as hana'a shel kilui, hana'a which is essentially uh, destructive, or should we say, which uh, is exhaustive. It uses the thing up. So you're right. In different areas of halacha, hana'a is going to be defined differently. Right now, for our purposes, I want to talk about hana'a in the generic sense, which is getting material benefit from something, such as selling it or using it for something where its physical substance gives you benefit, not its smell or its its appearance. Uh, smell may be different, but not its appearance, right? Uh, but rather something of that sort. However, this is the question, is how do I challenge Rabbi Avahu's rule? Rabbi Avahu's rule was every time the Torah says don't eat X, that means you can't get Hanav from X. You can't sell X, right? You can't feed it to your animals. You can't, uh, maybe you can't use it for fuel. Unless the Torah says you can, like in Nevela. How do I challenge that? You find an instance where you can, where it hasn't been specifically specified. Okay, good. So possibility one is the easy route, which Kurt says, which is find a counterexample. It's great. Of something where the Torah says don't eat it, it does not explicitly say you may get benefit, and yet the halacha is you may get benefit. Perfect. A harder one would be go to the opposite direction, right? Find one where the Torah does seem to say that you can get benefit, and for some reason benefits off the table. But that's not going to make much sense. So we're going to go with Kurt's direction. And I mean, the Yitzhak Napacha says, I like what Kurt says, let's take it. All right, here we go. What's the first counterexample brought by Rabbi Yitzhak Napacha to Rabbi Avahu's rule? By the way, Rabbi Yitzhak Napacha is a colleague of, uh, of Rabbi Avahu. Uh, in Eretz Yisrael, right? It's like third generation, right? So this is the end of the third century, okay? So he's right there. What is his challenge? Now, in order to establish the proof, what do you got to do? You got to do two things. And you said it, Kurt. What is it? You, you have to find explore. a counterexample. Right, and how do you build that counterexample? There's two pieces. I want to show you the methodology of it. What are the two pieces? That it said not to have Hana, but you had it. That it says don't eat. And we also have a ruling that says, right, that you may have Hana. Yes. Right? Now, notice the colors. I use the colors and the fonts on purpose so that you can see the difference. The first thing you got to do is you must quote a pasuk. If you don't quote a pasuk, you're not starting this. Because Revao's whole theory is about the language of the Torah. When the Torah says don't eat, it means Hana. It includes Hana. So therefore, you got to start with a pasuk where the word don't eat is there. The second thing is you need a ruling that says you may get hanah. Now, that can't be in the Torah, because if it's there, that's like Nevelo. So that's gotta, it's got to be something rabbinic. So let's go to the earliest layer of rabbinic literature that we have, which is the Mishnah. And I put in blue, right, in David font, as Rebbe claimed to be a descendant of David, right? So, varigidan Hashem. The Rahmana Amar. Now Rahmana is an interesting thing. Another little thing about Aramaic. What happens when you put an aleph at the end of a noun in Aramaic? What does it do? Let me know. It makes it longer. It does. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it adds one to the gematria. That's true. Good. What does it mean? When it's an aleph at the end of a noun in Aramaic. Is it feminine? Right. What it does is it, it's like a hey at the beginning of word in Hebrew. It's a definite article. Rachmana is harachaman. Harachaman, the merciful one. Rachmana is a, another name for God. But in Chazal's language, it's a name for God used when it wants to actually refer to the Torah. So when it says Rachmana Amar, even though technically you would say the compassionate one have said, you would uh, colloquially translate it as the Torah says. And you walk into any Beit Midrash, here's what I say, Rahman Amar, the Teirazot. Right, that's how it would be translated into Mamalashim. Okay, 
Rahman Amar, so what did the Torah say about Gidan Hashem? Al-Kain lo yochalu v'nei Yisrael Gidan Hashem. We had this a few weeks ago. It's the only prohibition that exists in Breshit, right? That's, that's for generations, which is B'nei Yisrael aren't allowed to eat Gidan Hashem. And notice, the key word is lo yochlu. They may not eat, which means we should assume now that you're not allowed to get Hanah based on Rabbi Avahu's rule. Now, let's stop a second and see, is this going to be a good challenge? Somebody challenge the challenge. Tell me why this is not a good challenge. Why it might not be a good challenge. Yeah. Now you got to find a, suk, a source where this says that you can't have Hanah from it. Good. So we're going to find that, and it's coming up. Let's, so we got, okay, you know what, Sherwin, let's, let's do that. Let's look at the next thing. And let's see if we, if after the whole challenge is laid in front of us, we can, we can poo-poo it. Utnan. Now, tanan. What does that word mean? And we learn. Mm -hmm. Okay. So utnan, it was taught, but it's important to note. Tanan means it was taught orally. Right? And, it, and again, take the tav, make it a shin, and what word do you get? Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Oh, okay. Okay. Which is to repeat. Shinun is oral repetition. Right? You will never ever find a Mishnah or a Braita or anything of that sort that's pre preceded by a word that indicates written or reading. It's always going to be reciting. There's nothing written down. Utnan, we were taught in a Mishnah. Tanan, by the way, remember that the, the Stama'im used these code words so that you'd know what kind of statement's coming. So Metiv introduces a challenge. Tanan introduces a Mishnah. There's other words, and we'll see them soon, that introduce other kind of literature. And that way, immediately you know where to look for it because you want to maybe see the original. This one, you could open up your phone and open up your Kahati app, which is an amazing app of an amazing work. Um, and open up Mishnah Chulin Perak Zayin, find the Mishnah about Gidan Hashem, and you can hear it read for you by somebody, and you can see a translation and commentary and explanation, because you know it's a Mishnah. How do you know it's a Mishnah? Utanan. Okay. What does the Mishnah say? Sholeach Adam Yarech Legoi V'gid Hanasheh B'tocho Nikar So the Mishnah says that a person is allowed to send a thigh of an animal with the gid inside of it to a non-Jew. Now, why is he sending it? What, what, what's, what's the story behind this? He wants recognition. All right, he wants recognition. What else? He wants to sell it for money. or Yeah, the guy bought it from him. He's, yeah. he's a shochet. And he's got this thigh, and the, but that's not. But that's not what it says. It says Shema Kamonikar. He wants to be recognized for this gift. No, Kamonikar is Mekomoshal Agid. Here's the problem: when you send the the thigh, and the gid is inside of it, the problem is that Gary the Goy gets the gid, okay, from the Gemenslach uh, Jew, and I'm running out of G's. And then his neighbor, Joe the Jew, wants to buy the thigh from him. And he says, sure, it's kosher. I got it from uh, Shimon the Sheikhan. Right? Mm. So we're concerned maybe we should not send it, sell it, give it to the non-Jew, because then it, he may inadvertently give it to a Jew, and the Jew won't know that he's eating Gid HaMashiach. The answer is, okay, you can see where the Gid is. It's visible. Right. Therefore, not a problem. He's not going to eat it. Okay. But the point here is that the Mishnah assumes no problem with you giving Gid HaNasheh as part of your sale. This animal was, let's say, a Nevela. You shechted it and didn't do a good job. And now you're sending it, you're selling it to this Goy. You can leave the Gid inside, which means you're making money off the Gid because he's paying you per weight. Now, Gid doesn't weigh much, but it weighs something. So you're getting Hana'a from this Gid HaNasheh. And yet the Torah said, don't eat it. So this is our first challenge. And again, it's a good counterexample, we think, because the Torah said, don't eat. Sort of. The Torah said, we don't eat it. And the Mishnah says, you're allowed to get Hana'a. Now, before we look at the defense, 
how could we right away knock down this challenge? And I'll, I'll give you a hint. You say, could you say that the benefit is incidental? Or insignificant. Or insignificant. Okay, good. You could say either one of those things. And I like those ideas that you could say that the Gidon Asher is bato. It's like so insignificant relative to the rest that we're not concerned with it. Or nobody's actually going to eat it and therefore is not going to pay for it. That's, that's all good. I like or that. You could sell it with a proviso that he can't sell it to a Jewish Jew. Yeah, but then you're then you're in in a sense almost in a worse position because now you're selling it to him for a hundred dollars, and you're making a proviso that he can't sell the gid to the Jew. He has to take it out, which means he's going to sell that for ninety five dollars, which means you made five dollars off of the gid. Let's say it's whatever you subtract out. I was thinking about something very different. I was thinking about the following, which is chronology. When was Gid Hanasheh prohibited to Bnei Yisrael? Or perhaps more appropriately to Bnei Yaakov? Yeah, we blame it on Yaakov or Yisrael at the end of the day. You've not yet, right? Still Yaakov. That's why I mentioned it that way. And you're showing your to me, right? So, so you could make the argument that, wait a second, you can't bring me a proof from the book of Breshit. Because this prohibition happened before Matan Torah. The rules were different. You want to know how different the rules were? Look through Parshat Vayeshev. Just look at chapter 38 in Breshit and see how different the rules are. Here's Yehuda, and Yehuda uh, ends up doing Yibum with his own daughter-in-law, and Yehuda spends uh, time with, uh, with a Kedeshah and doesn't seem to be bothered by it. We're not bothered by it. The rules are quite different before Matan Torah. So you could say the rules were different. Gidon Hashem was prohibited before the Torah was given. The rules are different. You don't eat. No, it's not on the table. You could make that argument. So you want to hear something absolutely wild about Gidon Hashem. There is a dispute in the, in the Mishnah. This is a tangent, but it's just too much fun to ignore. There is a dispute in the Mishnah in Chulin, the seventh parak about what happens if you eat the gid hanasheh of a pig. <laughs> Did you violate eating gid hanasheh? That's a good question. Yeah. So Rabbi Yehuda <laughs> says you do. You do. And Chachamim disagree and say you don't. What's going on? Rabbi Yehuda says, you know why you violated gid hanasheh? Because who got the prohibition of gid hanasheh? Oh. Yaakov. Was Yaakov allowed to eat pork roast? Of course he was. Why not? Sure. And therefore, he had, he, had it every Christmas, he had it every Christmas Eve. Yeah. And therefore, <laughs> I got timely. And therefore, um, when Gita on the show is prohibited, it was prohibited to everything that Yaakov ate, which is all animals, because there's no such thing as kashrut yet. That's Rabbi Huda's position. Chachamim's position is now the prohibition of Gidon Hashem. They fundamentally agree with him, but they say the prohibition of Gidon Hashem actually happened at Har Sinai. It was given along with all the other rules at Har Sinai, which means that Yaakov himself ate Gidon Hashem, Reuven ate Gidon Hashem, Yosef ate Gidon Hashem, but it was given in Har Sinai. So then why was it written here in Breshit? It was here written in Breshit so you'd understand the background. In other words, the event happened with Yaakov and the wrestling match at Breakfast. Of course, that's Yaakov. And then, but there's no impact on halakha. Jewish practice is, continues to be what it is. When Bnei Yisrael got to Arsinai, they're given a, a series of dietary restrictions. And one of the dietary restrictions is Gidon Hashem. But Hashem tells Moshe, write it in Bereshit. So that people will know that the reason for this prohibition is the story of Yaakov and the angels. By the way, Rashi says it a little bit differently. Rashi says that when Moshe came to write the Torah, he wrote it in um, in Breshit, so everybody would know why. That's an interesting Rashi um, uh, on its own, but that's a side thing. Okay. In the meantime, though, we're going to just go with Chachamim and say Gidon Hashem was given in Har Sinai. 
And given Rav Sinai, it should have the same rules and Rabbi Avahu is now challenged. Let's hear the answer. Can I ask you a question? Do they, yeah. they hold it the same way for Mitzvot say? I mean, are they saying that Purvu didn't exist until Harsinai? Or Pridla no. didn't exist until Harsinai? Yeah, so there's there's a different issue there. I'll just quick briefly mention it because that would be even a bigger tangent. And I'm the guy who's guilty of tangents here. Um, is that if you think about it, wh why aren't why isn't Purvu one of the Sheva Mitzvot Bnei Noach? It was given a brace sheet, right? Because we don't want too many goyim in the world? I no, don't think not, so. Don't think so. <laughs> Systematically, why isn't it part of Shevet Mitzvah In other words, if, if you're going to say, well, the words are given in Breshit, right, then then that means that they apply to everybody. And the other Mitzvah we actually get from directives that happen to Noah or to Adam. All the prohibitions are inferred from from Sukim with Adam and with Noach. Avram and Achai, prohibition of Bnei Noach, because that we're going to get to Avram and Achai in a little bit. So, um, so that the answer seems to be that if things were commanded before, this is a sugi in Sanhedrin in in around Daphnun Zayin and Chet. If things were commanded before Har Sinai, and then they're repeated after Har Sinai, then that means the command before Har Sinai applies universally. So for instance, the prohibition of murder, the prohibition of sexual immorality, etc., of cursing God, those all appear both before and after. So they apply the before then becomes universal. No, but again, you're talking about Lota, you're, you're only talking about Lotase. How about Mitzotase? Uh, dinim also. Dinim. Like, obligation, yeah. obligation, the obligation to have a beti. That's implicit in the laws given to Noah. And of course, it's explicit in several parts of the Torah afterwards. So therefore, it applies universally. But Purvu never shows up again. So therefore, Purvu is understood to be, even though it's given, it's said then, it's, it's assumed to be post-Sinaitic. Not when it was given, but its impact. They ask a good question, right? And that's the way the Midrashim deal with it. So now we're back to, to our problem. Gidon Hashem seems to challenge Rabbi Avau. Now notice where we go here. Kasavar Rabbi Avau, and I tried to show with indenting here, uh, the different parts of this argument. Kasavar Rabbi Avau means, uh, by the way, the kuf in front of a word in Aramaic as a prefix, or the word ka, kuf aleph is a separate word, is, is and untranslatable. It's kind of an eclitic word. It just means uh. I mean, it's a, you can't really put a translation to it. Kasava Rabbi Avahu, so Rabbi Avahu holds, and holds here means not to physically um, grab something. To hold means to have a particular position on, a, on an issue. Shehutran ve'la hi ve'chalba ve'gida hutran. Rabbi Avahu must hold, now by the way, who's talking here? We're going to get to that in a minute. But he must hold that when the Torah permitted you to get Hanah from an avail, remember that from last week? That was the big topic last week. An animal dies without proper shechita, you're allowed to give it or to sell it to the ger, to the goy, remember, of mayor or mayor, how many different ways you can you can dispose of it, but you can uh, make money off it. Um, Rabbi Avahu says, when the Torah permitted an avela, meaning permitted benefit, he v'chelba, chelev are those fats which are normally prohibited in an animal. Right? There are certain parts of a properly shechted uh, cow that you're not allowed to eat, right? Uh, that's chelev. Vegida hutra. In other words, Rabbi Avahu is of the position that says, when the Torah said, if you have a nevela, you may get benefit from it, it, it includes getting benefit from any part of it, including the gid. So Rabbi Avahu is going to say, I'm sticking with my position. Anytime the Torah says, don't eat something, it means no hana'ah. Gid hanasheh is a special case. Because why would I be sending this to the goy? Because my animal's in the veil. I had a proper cow. I shafted it and I blew it. Or it got hit by a bus. And so I don't want to throw the whole thing out. So I'm going to make some money. So I'm going to send it to the goy. I don't have to take the gid out. Right? And, uh, and I can get benefit. I can sell the gid. Why am I allowed to sell the gid? Because the gid is now part of a larger thing called an avail, which I'm allowed to get benefit from. There we go. Now, who's talking here? 
Rabbi Avahu is not talking. Rabbi Yitzchak Napacha, who challenged him, is not talking. Who's talking here? You're right, you don't know. Why don't you know? Because there's no name. What we're looking at here is the stamai layer of the Gemara, meaning the post, it's not, they're, they're Amoraim, but the post named Amoraim. So we're looking at the second half of the fifth century into the sixth century, discussions about a position that Rabbi Avahu took in the third century. I want you to get a sense of how fabulous the enterprise of Torah Shmapez. You have a Mishnah from the second century. Rabbi Yehuda and Chachamim discussing how to get rid of Chametz. And you're not allowed to have Hana'a. You have a discussion a hundred years later about how do we know that Hana'a is Asur? Chizkiah, one idea, Aravahu, another idea. And Aravahu's theory is discussed for hundreds of years. And Rabbi Yitzhak Napacha came up with a challenge against Rabbi Avahu in his lifetime. And now we're putting together the, the defense of Rabbi Avahu on his behalf. This is what Rabbi Avahu might have said. We don't know. He never said it. This is what he might have said. He might have said, you know what? I think that when the Torah said you can get benefit from a Nevela, you can get benefit from everything, including the Gid. Now, this leads us to an interesting other problem. And I'm going to show you yet another piece of the keywords that are used. You see the word Hanecha? Now, Hanecha is part of a logical rhetorical formula that is used by the Gemara. And Hanecha will always be followed by Ella. Hanecha, it sounds like what it sounds like, Noach. It's cool. It's comfortable. It's okay. Ella is, but, and what, whenever you see Hanecha, what you're looking at is, I'm about to see a position, an authority, a case, where what you just said fits perfectly. And I know waiting around the bend is a guy standing or the baseball batter about to cream me over the head saying, but it doesn't work so well in this case, or according to that position, or according to that authority. That's the Ella, and the Ella is the one you're waiting for. Okay, here we go. So you will now find out, and the minute you do this, if we're if we're studying Sachim second parak Biyun, we would right now close our Sachim, we would open up Chula in the seventh parak, and we would study this section in detail, which is, do Gidin have taste? Because if you recall from Chulin. And in your day, the issue of taste is paramount in the issue of kashrut. Right? Why do we always talk about 160th? And people, 160th. One, people use 160th all the time. They use it even when it doesn't apply. Why do we say 160th? Classic case, you're making chicken soup, and somebody comes along and spills a little bit of milk in it. Right? Rabbi, can I solve the chicken soup? All right? So depending on a lot of circumstances, what on the fire, was it covered, was it stirred, cold, hot? Okay, fine. But Let's say all the circumstances apply. Then what's the question he asks? How much and how much? Who cares how much? Because what's our assumption if a lot of milk fell into the chicken soup? Let's say two gallons of chicken soup and a gallon of milk. Trif. But what's our assumption about Asur, Asur, Asur. You what? can What? It's, it's chala, chala you can Because, is that what you're saying? No, it's, it's, it's taste. So it's, it's no taste time. You can taste the milk. It's no taste time because you can taste the milk, right? Good. On the other hand, a tiny little drop of milk that fall, falls into a huge vat of bubbling cholent, it's gone. You can't taste the milk at all. It's batel. You're not allowed to put it in. And if you do put it in intentionally, the whole thing is not, not okay. But if it falls in inadvertently, then it's diluted among the huge amount of flesh that's there, and it's gone. That's Patel. Because taste is everything when it comes to when it comes to Isurim. Now, here's the question. The Torah said you're not allowed to eat gid on a shell. What is a gid, by the way? It's a nerve or a sinew. Sciatic nerve. Sciatic nerve. 
Okay, but it's but it's a it's a stringy thing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, does, it have, does it have any taste? No. no. Not really. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know, but theoretically. Well, I've I, I've not eaten one, but I have smelled them and dissections. Okay. <laughs> and and not, not, not really. Doesn't seem to have any anything there. So that leads the Chachamim to the following discussion, which is partially realia, but partially theoretical, partially conceptual, which is yesh begidin benoten tam or not. And it's a discussion in Chulin. And what's the difference of yesh begidin benoten tam? It's a, actually a very big difference. Because if you say that a gid has, it means all gidin, but that means also gidan asher. If you say that they have taste, then when the Torah prohibited gidan asher, what did the Torah prohibit? or it's imparting taste on something. And therefore, if you were to cook in the meat, you know, how, then you have to measure you know, how much you know, and there's an impact on it. If on the other end, gidin do not have any taste, then when the Torah prohibited them, that means they're sweet generous. The rules don't apply because it's not about taste. Oh. It, it, it makes it worse. It makes it more severe. Because if it has taste, you treat it like anything else, like the drop of milk fell into the chone. But if, but it if it's properly, taste, if it's <clears throat> properly removed, if it's properly there is a specialty of removing the gid, yeah, and and the meat is kosher. It's a sirloin steak, and right. they good, but and they very good steaks. But you have to remove it. I mean, it's it's very tricky. Nikura yeah. gid has to be done before you cook it. Yeah, of course. But no, yeah. my question is this. And it's not my question, it's a Gamora's question. Yesh begidin benoten tam or not? Meaning, does a gid have taste or not? And here's the difference. If a gid has taste, it makes it more lenient. Why? Because then we'll measure it like any other forbidden food, that if its impact on the other food is negligible, then it's, then the, the food's okay. But if on the other hand, in the gidin benoten tam, that means that their prohibition is a sweet, generous pro prohibition, can't be judged by the, by the standards of anything else. So let's take a look in the Gemara. So this defense of Rabbi Avahu, that when the Torah permitted an Avela, permitted everything, including the Gid, that only works if the Gid is part of the Avela because it's it's got tiny taste. And the prohibition is like the regular rest of the prohibition of any meat that's prohibited. Ella, remember, Ella's coming here. Lamandamar ain't begidim nanotain tam, ma'ika lamemar. Right? So now, according to the position that holds that Gideon have no taste, that means all Gideon have no taste, how are you going to defend Rabbi Avahu? Now, let's make sure we've got the pieces in place here. Rabbi Avahu made a statement, which is anytime the Torah says don't eat, it implies hana. Can't have hana. We challenge, Rabbi Yitzhak Napacha challenges by saying, Gideon Hashem. The Torah says don't eat, and yet the Mishnah says you're allowed to get hana. So we see in his defense, he could have a very easy thing. He could say, you know what? Because when the Torah said you could get benefit from a novella, you can get a benefit from the novella and the gid. So that only works if the gid is part of the novella because it's part of the offending meat. But if the gid is some sort of weird prohibition, it has no taste, but it's just prohibited, then you can't include it as part of the novella. How can you get hana? So the answer is now we're going to play. Remember, I forgot the name of the game, that brick breaker. You know where you move the pieces around and you got one empty slot and you got to get them lined up all in order. It's like the the original original Rubik's cube. Tetris. What? Tetris. Before Tetris, it was like a little thing with plastic cubes that you would move around, plastic squares. Anyway, lochashu. Um, because what you're going to see what we do is we're going to put this all together. In a way that actually works beautifully. Man Who's the authority? Who's the rabbi who says that gidim don't have taste? And when the Torah prohibited them, it's just a blanket prohibition. The answer is Rabbi Shimon. Okay, so what? The Tanya. Now here we go. The Tanya means what? What? We learned in a brisa. We learned. And the, the specific use of Tanya indicates the Brita, as opposed to Tanan. But again, it just means it was recited for us. It was repeated for us. All right, the Tanya, and here's the Brita, 
האוכל מגיל הנשש של בהמה טמאה, I told you about this, what if you eat בגיל הנשש of a pig, right? Do you remember Rabbi Yehuda said mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the Torah prohibited Gidon Hashem to Yaakov? So therefore that means all Gidon Hashem is prohibited, even of a pig. Chacham said no, it was prohibited in Harsinai. So it's only kosher animals that are included. You're not allowed to eat a pig anyway, so it's off the table. Rabbi Yehuda Machayev Shtayim. He says you get two sets of makot. Two sets of makot. Why do you get two sets of makot? For Chazer. And, and for the geet and the geet. Bill. Excellent. You get one <laughs> for all it, you give the makot. You get one for geet on asher, and one, that's what you heard of shita, and one for eating chazer. You're not eating chazer. Yes, you are, because geet didn't have taste. And what taste do they have? They taste the taste of what they are. They're chazer, in this case. Rabbi Shimon Poter. Rabbi Shimon says you're exempt. Why are you exempt? Totally exempt. No makot whatsoever if you eat the gita nasheva chazer, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> Why does Rabbi Shimon say you're exempt? Because first of all, the Torah prohibited gita nasheva harsinai, which means it only applies to animals that you otherwise you're allowed to eat. The Torah said you may not eat chazer, you may not eat camel, you may not eat a hyrax, you may not eat a rabbit. You may eat these other mammals, and these other mammals you can't eat the fats, and you can't eat the gita nasheva. All right. So that means Gidon Asher only became prohibited as a unique prohibition of these other animals. Good. But Rabbi Shimon should still say you're chayiv for eating a non-kosher animal. You ate a gid of a non-kosher animal. No, you're patur. You know why? Because gidim have no taste. Ah. So look how delightful it is. <laughs> Rabbi Yehuda comes along and says you're chayiv two sets of makot for eating the Gidon Asher of a pig. And Rabbi Shimon says you're chayiv zero. So the assumption is you eat only the gita nasheh of the chazer, absolutely nothing else of the chazer. Right, exactly. That's what we're talking about. Right? So by, by that logic, you can eat, uh, you if, can. if a part of the pig has a, has a no taste, then you can eat that. No, there's no you can. We're not talking about what's mutar. It's all asur. Stay away from pigs. Totally asur. We're talking about what's the liability <laughs> after. Very critical when studying halacha to be clear on are we talking about uh, are we talking about permission or prohibition of behavior or are we talking about consequences? This sugya we're talking about consequences. The main sugya is about behavior. Am I allowed to get benefit? But this particular piece is talking about consequences. Do I get makot or not? Nobody in the world thinks you're allowed to eat the gita nasheva pig. For sure not. The question is, what are the consequences? So Rabbi Yudah says you chayiv twice, because A, you ate gita nasheva of a prohibited animal, because it was prohibited back then. <clears throat> and second of all, you're chayiv for eating chazer. Rabbi Yudah says you chayiv nothing. You chayiv nothing because the prohibition of gita nasheva didn't apply to pigs, because it was given in our Sinai. And second of all, it has no taste, and therefore you're not chayiv for eating, um, for eating gita nasheh, because gita doesn't have any taste, all right? So that so you're not chayv for gita nasheh, because this is not, not a gita that's prohibited. And you're not chayv for eating chazer, because the gita has no taste. You didn't eat anything of the chazer that had taste, okay? So now, that means, now we're saying that according to Rabbi Shimon, this theory is not gonna work, because according to Rabbi Shimon, gita nasheh has no taste, okay? And if it has no taste, then that means it doesn't operate in our normal parameters. And therefore, the Gita Nashev and Avela still should be prohibited. And how can you send it to the Goy? The answer is, Rabbi Shimon Achinami does Sarbanat. This is why it works perfectly. You're right. Rabbi Shimon actually thinks you're not allowed to get benefit. Titania, here we go. Another bright up. Gita Nashem Mutar Bahana'at, Diver Biura, Bishimon Oser. Boom, boom, boom. It's a beautiful wrapped up present. It works perfectly. Rabbi Shimon now, and, and as we say, everything falls into place perfectly. Because Rabbi Shimon, who is, was until four seconds ago the fly in our ointment, because he's the one who said, didn't have no taste, he actually confirms the theory by saying, and you're not allowed to get Hana. It's perfect. He would disagree with this Mishnah that said, you can send the Arech with the Gidin. Okay? So I want to show you another uh, uh, two examples, if possible. But, but does it matter if it has taste? Because if you're not supposed to eat it, you're not supposed to eat it. Correct. And how do we know? 
Correct. Pigs, pig's uh, uh, sciatic nerve is tastes different than a pig. Okay, good. So that's so that's the question. Nigel, that's a very good question. So let's spend a minute to let's thinking about what Nigel asked. Let's say that we rule halachically that gidim have no taste, right? Gidim have no taste. If I ate the gid of a pig, did I eat pig? According to the position, it has no taste. No. Didn't. No. I didn't. Therefore, I can't be liable for eating chazer. Now, if we say that the gid on of a chazer was never prohibited because by the time we got to Arsini, pigs were already off, off the chart, off the wagon, then that means I'm not liable off the for table. anything. Well, then, okay. I, I'm, I was traveling. So I right? Then, I, then I, there's neither side am I liable for. If, on the other hand, you say that gidim have a taste, then you're right. If I eat the gid of a pig, I may not have violated gid on a because maybe gid on a of a pig is not prohibited because pigs were already out, but I ate chazer, right? Because it has taste. So I ate something that grew as part of a pig that had taste. But if we say gidim have no taste, that means they're removed from the whole category of machalot asurot in the same way, and they become a different isra, which, by the way, is more severe. Because with taste, remember, I can nullify it if it's small enough, right? But you only get uh, makos for, for one. Uh, you only that get one. Case, yeah, but if you hold like Rabbi Shimon, I get makot for none because gidim have no taste, which means I didn't eat chazer. And he holds that the gid of a pig is not also because, because the Torah never prohibited, only prohibited things I was otherwise allowed to eat, animals I was allowed to eat. All right? So again, please remember, we're talking here only about consequences, not about, not about permission. I have an I, issue about this taste issue. Those of us in the biological sciences yeah. have dissected nerves all over the body. Okay. And we eat nerves with the other parts of the body. Okay. And as far as the taste issue, number one, if that is so that it imparts taste a, a, a taste to to the uh, to the piece of meat. Uh, who is the one that determined that there's a taste to it? Okay, so you're you're, you're raising two very good questions. I'm going to address them quickly because they're really good questions. First question that Manny's asking is who determines whether taste has been imparted, and that is the sugi and dafsari zayin in Chulin of the kfela, right? Where they say that let's say that you actually went ahead and cook the thigh with the gid in. You forgot to take the gid out. So you have it tasted by a non-Jewish chef. It says is the taste. Now, the problem, of course, is that there's no, that, that even if a gid has taste, it's no different than the taste of the thigh. There's not, nothing to recognize. That's called mimino. That, not in that case. But normally, let's say basar b'chalav. It's tasted by a kfela. You haven't tasted the cholent to say to you, Taste and you know, does you taste anything of the cream in there? If he does, then it's awesome. If there is no kfela, then you uh, then you use 60. And depending on the substance and the circumstances, the numbers may vary and the circumstances may vary. But that's what you do. So, in other words, there's a way to determine if the taste is there. The problem that you're raising is the problem that I by I kind of back back ended into, which is what happens when the taste is all the same. So if you have the gid inside the thigh, whatever taste the gid is going to have will be the taste of that animal. It's not going to taste like cherries or mint. It's going to it's going to taste like that animal. So there's no way to really tell, which is why this becomes an interesting halachic dispute about whether gidim have no tam or not, because it's to some extent conceptual more than real. Because how do you identify it? Now you're going to tell me the, the our scientists here and doctors here. You're going to tell me that if you take, if you totally isolate a gid from a body, anybody, any sinew from the body, and you take it apart, you're going to see it has absolutely nothing that could possibly flavor anything. It's dry. It's you know whatever it is. True. Question is how are chazakachamim defining tam? I don't know. Are they defining tam as the thing in isolation, or are they identifying tam as while it's still part of the living body? I don't know. And so that becomes part of the question. So did anybody uh, concern themselves with this issue and put it in the in the category of being a chok 
so that one need not have to deal with all of these issues that okay, really so, can't be proven. Right. So um, yes and no. <laughs> Great classic rabbinic answer um, is that on the one hand, um, the rabbis were notoriously non-empiricists. They were notoriously non-empiricists. So when they established things, and I'll give you a, a quick example is when they established certain measures, for instance, as saying, this is the amount of food that brings minimal satisfaction. And therefore, if you eat this much, you have to bench, right? As an example, um, they, didn't, they didn't run a test. They didn't do a survey. They didn't try it out on uh, different age people and et cetera to see how it works out. They made a determination based on a tradition and based on knowledge, but without the test. Um, and so on the one hand, they were very much opposed to, to that sort of thing. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, the the uh, Mishnah in Menachot, and it looks like we're probably going to have to finish with this, but uh, you'll let me know if you want to do part three on this, because we, we there's no reason not to, unless you don't want to. But there's a lot more in the sugya, and there's a lot of good methodology we can get from the sugya. So just please um, either put it in the chat now or send me an email like it today, and let me know if you want to do a part three on this. If not, then we'll we'll move to the next sugya. Um, there is a Mishnah in Masachat Milachot that says that if a person makes a neder to bring a mincha uh, of up to 60 isaron, then he brings it in one vessel. I'm not going to go into the details now about how big an isaron is and how big a vessel is. Not our problem. If he, on the other hand, says, I'm going to bring 61 or more than 60, he has to bring it in two. And the rabbi said, why is that? Because shishim nivlalim yafeh, shishim v'chad en nivlalim yafeh. When you have a, a mincha, you bring flour and you bring oil. And so they knew that with 60 isaron and the proper amount of oil that goes in a kli of 60, uh, 60 in one kli, you could still mix it well. If it's 61, you can't mix it well anymore. And so the Gemara immediately challenges that, challenges that on two grounds. One ground is, one, one grounds is that the rule is that even if you didn't mix the oil, if you didn't stir the oil in, you just poured it in, you're still yotze. So you don't need to stir. Second thing is, you're going to tell me that exactly at 60 is the cutoff line. And the answer is, midat chachamim kachi. That's the way measurements go. And the example they give is a great example. How big is a mikvah? 40 sa 40 sa What's 40-sa based on? It's based on the size of an average person, which is three amot high, one ama squared, basically. And if you turn that linear measure into volume, you end up with 40-sa. And do the math. It's written up there in a lot of places. Now, what about, uh, I'm going to take Will Chamberlain because he was beefier than Karim Abdul-Jabbar. What about Will Chamberlain going to the mikvah when he finally converted a year after he died? Chamberlain never converted. What would happen if Chamberlain wanted to go to the mikvah? We would, you would think you need a much bigger mikvah. What if Chamberlain scrunched up and somehow got himself into a 40-sound mikvah and made it in there? Okay. But on, the okay. Other, on the other hand, what about a baby who's being converted? A little child who's being converted. You still need 40-sound. Why? Because that's the standard. That's the standard. And that's what yeah. standards are. Right? And the same thing, by the way, with Shishim. Now, you could say, so why don't the rabbis just do a regular test to see what actually works? And what each particular kind of food stuff. The answer is we work with kind of standardized um, rulings. Now, I don't know if I put that in what you're calling a chok, by which you mean it's the fiat of the law, and that's, it's, it's, a, it's, it's God's law, and that's it. Because we're first of all, we're not pinning this on God in that in that sense. And God's saying that these particular things give Tom in this way, saying that's the rule that the rabbis put together. So you're kind of right though, Manny, in that they're making it untouchable. You get, it's not something you can really assail and challenge on its own terms. Right? I don't know if that really answers the question. I hope it does. Let's just take a quick peek at the at the next challenge. And notice that this challenge is not associated with a person's name. 
before we had Rabbi Yitzhak Napacha, which is why I think that this may be Rabbi Yitzhak Napacha again. The Dam, what's Dam? Which is, why is it on this list? Because uh, derves don't bleed. Because you're not allowed to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> not allowed to eat it. It's a prohibition, of, right? And the first thing we're going to do is quote a pasuk. None of you are allowed to eat dam. Okay. Utnan. Now, this Mishnah, straightforward. Eilu There's a Mishnah in Yoma. And it's talking about the blood of the par and the sa'ir on Yom HaKippurim. When the Kohen Gadol finishes all the avodah with the dam ha-par and the dam ha-sa'ir, which go into the inside, Kodesh Kodoshim, then come to the Kodesh. He does a total of either 43 or 47 spritzes with each one of them. And then what does he do with the rest of them? The rest of the dam? He pours the rest of the dam out into the Yisoda Ma'ravi, the the hole on the side of the outside Mizbeach. It goes all the way down to Nachal Kidron. And what happens? And then the gardeners, the people who work the land out there, buy it from the Beit HaMikdash. Yeah. Why do they buy it? So that it's not, there's no liability for Me'ila. Zabel, they use it for fertilizer, Umalinbo. There would be Me'ila if you didn't buy it. It would be still belongs to the Mikdash. In other words, you're allowed to get Hanar from Dam. That's the point. The Torah says, don't eat mm -hmm. Dam. You're allowed to get Hanar from Dam. Now, this is real material Hana'a. They're using it as a fertilizer. All right. So, Rabbi Avahu, again, is up against the wall. How are you going to defend your position that every time the Torah says don't eat something, it means can't get on awe. The Torah clearly said don't eat dam, and here explicitly we see you can get on awe from dam. Right. right? So the answer is shani dam. Shani means? Different. Right, different. Shoneh. To eat kashlamayim. Now here's another midrashic tool that is very common. It's called a hekesh, and a hekesh means a juxtaposition. It's when two ideas or two words or two laws are placed next to each other in the Torah, the notion is that their proximity teaches some form of correlation, right? Causation is not correlation necessarily. Correlation is certainly not causation, but juxtaposition maybe. So now, dam di'it kashlamayim. Dam is compared to water. Dichtiv, what do we know about water? I mean, sorry, what do we know about dam? Lo tochalenu. You're not allowed to eat dam. Spill it out on the ground like water. What's the reason of saying like water? Just say spill it on the ground. Why add like water? Just like you're allowed to get on off from water, you're allowed to get on off from dam. Right? Okay. Um, uh, you want, should we finish up to the next end of the paragraph? You guys stick with me for a couple minutes? Sure. Sorry, got Art Blakey waking me up there. Okay. Um, Ve'ema. So what does Ve'ema mean? And look. And I will say, Ema, I will say, but what it what it introduces is <coughs> an alternative theory. Ve'ema. Why don't I say as follows? Maybe the water that the dam is being compared to is not mundane water that you could spill out and use for whatever you want. And therefore, dam can be used for whatever you want. Maybe it's like the water that's poured on the Mizbeach, on Sukkot. Or the answer is Amr Rabbi Avahu. So now, interesting, we come back to Rabbi Avahu, who was not in the middle of this discussion. Kamayim rovmayim. And it could be that Rabbi Avahu was actually not saying this. We're saying this on his behalf. When it says, spill it out like water, he says, you know what that means? Like most water. Right? 99.999% of the water that we use is not the water that goes on the Mizbeach. Water that goes on the Mizbeach happens five or six days a year in one place with a little bit of water. Right? So, Midi Rov Mayim Ktiv, does the Torah say Rov Mayim? Ela Amar Ravashi, Rashi Ravashi gives an answer. What does it say? It says, spill it out like water meaning spilled water. Spilled water is water that you're throwing out. You can do whatever you want with it. You can use it to wash your balatot, 
on your on your floor. You can use it to uh, to uh, you know to water your garden, whatever you want. The same thing with dung. It's not water that's being placed on the mizbeach. Important water, water that spilled out. The Torah says tishpachenu. So maybe a dam should be treated like water that spilled out in front of Avodazara. That's what we're, we're pushing here and saying, why are you taking the word Mayim and using it for the leniency and saying dam is compared to water? By the way, there's another important reason dam is compared to water is to make dam one of the seven liquids for Echshatuma. So the answer is Atam Nami Nisuch Ikri. Pouring water in front of a libation in front of a is also not called spilling. It's called libation. That's in Hazinu. Okay, so now, and this is we're gonna we're gonna if you want to continue, we're gonna we're gonna go back, do the quick part of Dam and pick it up in Chizkiah. Remember, Chizkiah has got the opposite position. He says when the Sarator says don't eat, it's only don't eat. And it's only the weird phrase, lo yeachel, that tells, says I can't eat hummus. I can't get benefit from hummus. So any, by the way, any defense we're going to come up on behalf of Revao now becomes a challenge to Chizkiah. It's ping pong. <laughs> so now we've got to find a way to defend Chizkiah against this attack. And that's what we'll start with. Again, I'll, I'll take a look. I know somebody sent a, a chat. And we'll see if anybody else did. Um, and, uh, and we'll take it from there. In the meantime, though, we'll, uh, we'll hold it off for now. Uh, Shul starts in a few minutes, and um, let me just, I'll take a quick peek. Let's see what you guys got here. Um, another sheer, and, uh, okay, good. So it looks like everybody's getting a lot of Hanah from Hanah. So <laughs> good, I'm glad to know that. Um, okay, good. So next week, we'll continue, and uh, we'll pick it up at this point. Every